Hello and welcome to In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. I'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Randall Jacobs. Each week we muse about gravel cycling and how it's fitting into our lives. These episodes are supported by listeners like you. Simply visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride to support the podcast. Additionally, we encourage you to visit The Ridership, a free global cycling community. It's something we created to serve the cycling community and also serve as a back channel for any suggestions you had for the podcast. With all that said, let's dive right into my conversation with Randall. Hey, Randall, how you doing? I'm doing well, Craig. How are you? I'm doing okay. A little bit rainy day here in Marin, so I'm glad I got a nice ride in yesterday. Very much uh, needed given the water table throughout California and uh, fire risks coming up next season. So not a bad thing. Yeah, fortunately, they were actually. So I looked at the weather forecast and I made sure I got our ride in on Friday, which was great to see you. And then I got a nice ride in on Saturday. So I feel relatively fulfilled with my last few days of riding. Excellent. Yeah, I've gotten been back on the bike since being back in the Bay. And I've gotten a few rides in with friends. And it's been great. Like, to people who are vaccinated, the statistics increasingly show that the risk of transmission is exceedingly low, at least with the variants that are out there now. And so being able to go out for a ride with a friend and not have it be something that has to be overly worried about is quite a relief. Absolutely. Uh, I think we talked about this maybe on the last in the dirt. It is a little bit awkward right now. We run into people on the trails and they're still, I'm pulling my mask up to be courteous, but it, I feel like there's going to need to be some statements by the government to say, hey, it's okay to be outside if you're not if you're vaccinated and eventually we can get back to normal trail use. Yeah, there's a lot that shows that outdoor mask usage when you have a lot of space can be somewhat performative. But I do think that especially in dense urban areas there's still some value to that and plus people are just getting over this traumatic experience of being afraid of this pandemic. And so when I'm out and about, I have my mask with me. And if I pass somebody, even if I'm sufficiently distant, if they're wearing a mask, I honor their boundaries by putting my mask up and just just so everyone is comfortable. But we're slowly getting to a, a greater degree of normalcy while at the same time needing to remain vigilant. Yeah. Yeah. And we certainly have to acknowledge that other parts of the world aren't getting as close as we are to returning back to normalcy. So keep masking up, keep protecting yourself and keep protecting others for sure. Yeah, yeah. But so, on, uh, onto the gravel world, I saw a pretty cool announcement from Cervelo about their new Aspero. Did you catch that? I did. Yeah, it seems that they have shed some weight and gone internal with all the cables and hoses. And the- I also thought they did a good job of aesthetically. It's a sexy, fast-looking bike. And mm-hmm. I've always appreciated that they're very much in this race bike category, which may not be for everybody, but I think it is for some. And it's it's an attractive package. Yeah, and it's in the same mode of the endurance roadie type geometry. So this could be an excellent bike as the one bike for everything. You know, it's 72 head angle, reasonably, you know, sporty handling and so on. And they have this flip chip that is interesting in the fork too. So it's in the fork, the flip chip? Correct. And what's that all about? So the way that they're marketing it and the way that they've implemented it is... It's really a way to maintain the same trail figure when you have tires of different radius. And so if you have a 650 by 47 tire, right, that's going to be 10 millimeters less radius than a 700 by 40. If you go 700 by 45, it's 15 millimeters, but just taking those two sizes. So it's going to be about 10, 10, 11 millimeters difference 
depending on tire uh, pressure and things like that. And so they have a flip chip in there that keeps their the trail figure at around 58, 58 and a half millimeters, which they have defined as the sweet spot. And so if that's important to you to maintain the same trail with two different wheel tire volumes or tire radia, then, then that can be useful. So what's the net uh, effect of that? So what, when for the uninitiated, what is that trail figure when you're designing a bike and you said that that 58 or whatever was what they thought was the ideal is that have to do with the steering quickness, the, the stability? Mm-hmm. What, what is it, how does it play out? You can think of it partially as quickness. It's really like the propen- it's also the propensity of the bicycle to want to travel in a straight line. And so it's hard to uh, explain without a diagram. But just in terms of numbers, a, a lower trail figure is going to be a little bit more responsive. So the ratio of input at the steering to output in terms of turning and so on will be great will be greater versus a larger trail figure of getting into 60 65 or so um, that's going to be slower handling so the inputs at the steering are going to be result in less output in terms of the bicycle actually turning okay so if you talk about extremes like if we talk about a chopper that's got a very extreme high trail number and as everybody can imagine riding a choppered out bicycle when you turn the handlebar, it's very slow to steer. Correct. And you end up with another problem, which when you're talking about subtle differences in trail and relatively steep head angles in the like 70 to 73 range, then, you know, wheel flop isn't an issue. But if you've ever been on like a really slacked out mountain bike, you'll notice that like the bicycle, when it's straight, it's at one height. And then when you turn it one way or another, the bicycle actually drops a little bit. So the bicycle has a, a natural propensity to want to turn. And, and in fact, the more it's turning, the faster it's going to turn because the weight, your weight's pressing down is causing that turning. It's supporting that turning. And so that, that can be an issue when bikes get really slacked out. So that's the net effect on climbing. But the, the net effect on descending, if we talk about on the mountain bike side, is just stability through rough terrain. Correct. And also when you're descending, you're, you're pointed downhill. So your head angle relative to the downward vector of gravity is going to be more steep when you're going downhill. And so the steering characteristics are, are different. And yeah. so there's a bunch of variables here. Yeah, now it makes sense. As I jumped from my heavily cross-country oriented 29er mountain bike to a more kind of all mountain bike that was full suspension, became way back in slack and climbing became maybe less fun, but descending became a hell of a lot of more fun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So on this um, particular bike, I don't know with the gravel athlete, a lot of times maybe you don't get into thinking about the geometry and what it's going to do when you're buying the bike. But you mentioned that the flip chip is just making it a neutral change between tire sizes. If you had two wheel sets on there, right? Yeah, and neutral in terms of, again, this trail figure. So steering input to steering output and the propensity of the bike to want to travel in a straight line. And this is one way to achieve this. And the other thing that I look at this and it's okay, that's great. But I actually threw the bike's geo in a little CAD program. And I just queried, what if I took the just the standard 51 millimeter trail position and changed the wheels without flipping the chip? what would be the, the impact on trail? And the impact on trail is only three millimeters. So we're actually not, I'm not sure that the juice is worth the squeeze with regards to having this extra component. Three millimeters of trail may be noticeable to somebody who's really can appreciate that subtlety, 
But frankly, our bike actually has the same front end geo. The OB1 is the same front end geo, 72 degree head angle on the large and a 51 mil offset. And I've ridden it with the 700 by 40s and the node, the difference is subtle, but actually the higher radius tire, like a 700 by 40, well, oftentimes you'd be running that tire when you're doing more straight flat stuff anyways. And maybe you want slower trail when you put on that higher rate, the greater radius tire. And so that change in trail is actually a benefit because it's, it makes sense for the, uh, the tire being mounted. So are you, are you suggesting maybe this particular impl- implementation of a flip chip didn't go far enough? I'm saying that there's, it is useful if you are, if you really uh, have a, a sense of the subtlety when you change this, but don't expect a radical difference when flipping the chip versus changing the tires. If you're committed to one wheel size or another and you put the 650s on and you put the chip in that particular position, you've got the bike that the Cervelo engineer designed. Correct. Precisely. So if you're like a one wheel set kind of guy or girl, you got what's promised to you by the engineers, but it's not necessarily trying to change the performance from more of a road bike experience to more of a off-road bike experience. Correct. Yeah, it's really keeping the gravel-focused experience consistent across different wheel sizes. Though at the same time, like there is, uh, I'd have to take a look at how they've implemented here, but presumably one position there would be, well, so there's a trade-off here too, in that you, in a road bike geo, you want, you also want the, generally the handlebar position maybe to be lower and maybe the axle to be more underneath your, where your hands are on the bar, so the, the bar is going out, the axle coming in, so that front end's more planted. Uh, because on the road, take like a high-speed road descent. You really want a, that front end planted because you have the grip and you want it to feel, you don't want the wheel wallowing. And then a lot of your braking performance is there too. On the dirt, it's exactly the opposite. You want to be able to get your weight back. You have limited traction up front. You don't want the front wheel to wash out. Uh, and so you'd want to be a little bit more upright, the axle a little bit further out and so on. And it's hard, to, this the, this implementation doesn't really achieve anything with regards to changing that dynamic. So it doesn't really make it more of a road, more or less of a road bike in different positions. It's really about, again, maintaining consistent trail across the the two different wheel sizes that it accommodates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, int- it's an interesting model. I know a number of people who ride this bike, a number of people, frankly, who have given up their road bike because this one was so good at riding on the road as well as off-road, as you mentioned, very close to an endurance road bike geo, with the exception that they they have built-in decent tire clearance. I think at a 650, you can go all the way out to a 49. Correct. Yeah. And I can't recall what they allow with a a 700. I'm guessing at least 700 by 40, maybe it fits a 42 or 45. I think it was a 42. Yeah. Toe overlap probably come, becomes an issue in some of the smaller sizes in particular beyond that point, which gets into yet another one of these like variables that have to be considered when you're looking at all these geometry p- parameters, because you can have the perfect geo, but if, if you're going to have toe overlap, that's going to be a real compromise and may result in some safety issues. Yeah, for sure. I feel fortunate that I'm in the medium or 56 kind of size, because typically I do all right when it comes to toe overlap. Yeah. And I think we did what, 170 cranks for you or 165s. I, I I would not capitulate at the time in which I bought my bike and I went 172.5, but ah, I think I'm okay. sold now that I would go 170 <laughs> in the future. Yeah. Proportional crank length helps with that a little bit and it allows you to do a, a slightly tighter front end geo on the smaller bikes without adding to that risk of uh, 
toe overlap. Yeah, and I don't have a particularly large foot, so that helps as well. It makes me skirt the issue entirely. So this gets into, so we talked about a little bit about geo. The other thing we wanted to discuss today is the advent of suspension. We're starting to see suspension, particularly for front end suspension on gravel bikes. Yeah, I've been obsessing a little bit over it, just trying to figure out a, the best way to articulate a conversation around suspension, because I think a lot of times, and this may be true for some of the listeners out there, the moment you mention the word suspension, you get a hard stop. I don't want to hear about it. I've got no interest in suspension whatsoever. But the reality is every single bike out there in the world is suspended in some way. Absolutely. We, we use pneumatic tires. Exactly. Like that's a suspension system. And when we talk so much about tire pressure, as we have ad nauseum on this podcast, mm -hmm. that is the number one spot in which a lot of people are getting their suspension. Correct. Yeah. And it, it is a pretty ideal place to get it too, because there are other benefits that come with getting your suspension from the tires. It is uh, rolling efficiency, comfort, traction, and so on versus say adding a suspension fork. You're getting, it's helping with traction for sure. And that's one of the key benefits and it's helping with comfort, but you're adding a, a tremendous amount of weight and potentially some slop in the front end. So even if you lock that out, it's never going to have the responsiveness when you get up and stand up and really hammer on the pedals that a, a standard solid fork would have. So yeah, I think that's an experiment. It's like going back to tire pressure. I think that's an experiment that every rider should do. And I encourage just go out there and ride on high tire pressure and see what happens in terms of <laughs> traction and control. Oh, geez. For us, for us and me, particularly here in Marin, like that, the repercussions become very stark and are delivered very quickly. Like you, yeah. just, you just can't keep control of the bike. You get a little bit of a pogo effect and you just can't maintain traction because you have a much smaller contact patch. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think you've got traction as one of the vectors that you need to think about around suspension. You've got just overall performance and how, how the bike is feeling underneath your body, right? So we can only all take a certain amount of abuse from these bicycles. Sure. So, so again, figuring out suspension on the bike is critical First starting point is tire volume and tire pressure. And mm -hmm. to, to put some specific numbers around it, and we riffed on this on our ride, if you've got a 650 by 47 millimeter tire, how many millimeters of suspension do you think you get if you're running a you know, reasonably low tire pressure? So this is pure speculation. And if somebody hasn't done a study on this, I'm sure that we'll see this at some point. Think about like, really, when I set my tire pressure, I'm setting when I have my tires on a, on a nice wide rim. So I can run them low without them squirming around. So in the case of a 650 by 47, this is like 25 millimeters plus. I run on a, a 27.4 internal and that's plenty wide. So then from there, it's what, are the, what is the lowest pressure I can run and not bottom out the rim, given the terrain I'm riding and how hard I'm riding it. And so wanting to have a little bit of buffer in there. The one way I think of it is like, over the course of the ride, I'm probably using two thirds of the tires travel. So 47 and be you know around 30 millimeters or so of the tires travel, just going over rough stuff as I'm descending and so on. And then for those bigger hits, I still have a little bit of buffer there. And the pressure is actually increasing slightly as the tire is being compressed. And so there's almost like it's a, it has a ramped air spring. 
Yeah. And I think as we talk about other ways in which bikes are getting suspended, just having that 30 millimeter odd figure in our head is going to be interesting for discussion. Obviously, mm. if you're running a 700 by 40 tire, you're getting less than that. So maybe it's 22 or something. But as a listener, keep that in mind as, as we move forward. As some of you, I've been riding the um, Redshift suspension stem for, gosh, well over a year now. In fact, I just got sent the pro version to shed a little weight on it. I put the thing on. I initially thought that I'd ride it and test it and, and let people know what I thought about it and I'd take it off, but I haven't taken it off. And it's because mm-hmm. it is just blended in the movement and motion, which I've set up to be around 15 millimeters. So again, half of what I'm getting out of the tires is subtle enough. And the performance change is, is in my mind, positive that I keep, that I've kept that on this whole time. So that's yet another way to achieve suspension on the bike. And with that stem, they have different elastomers that you can put in so that you could get like the first bit of travel. Maybe your tires are more sensitive. So the first bit of travel is coming from the tires and it's only when you have a bigger hit that uh, suspension stem is starting to engage. Yeah. And then you do have some frame manufacturers building a little bit of travel into their frames. I should state that in a different way. You have some that are building the capacity for travel within a rigid frame. And then others obviously are gone, have gone to completely fully suspended route, like the Niner, for example. Yeah. And I think maybe we start with the first one. So this would be like the steerer based suspension systems. And I think that on the one hand, it is ultimately, if we put aside the any sort of structural complexity or compromise that's created with such a design, in terms of the handlebar not rotating, that's a benefit relative to a suspension stem, right? So you get with your bars, I assume that you rotate them back a tiny bit so that when they're fully compressed, your hands aren't sliding forward on the levers. Is that right? Yeah, there's a slight adjustment to be made. Yeah. So a small adjustment. And I think that adjustment, frankly, is a better compromise than getting a suspension steer, which keeps the bars oriented in the same way. They just drop down, but adds a huge amount of complexity in an area that is, there's a lot of stress and it's very high consequence if something goes wrong. And if a part fails or something like that and nothing bad happens, well, you still, you, you can't just swap in a, a part really easily. Or if you don't want suspension up front anymore, I guess you could lock it out. But with a suspension stem, you could always just put in a, a normal stem. Yep. Yeah. And there's also the rear end of the bike where some people are doing some trickery. I know BMC with their URS bike has a little bit of movement designed into the back end and even going back so far as their hardtail mountain bikes, which I've owned one from about 10 years ago, they always brought the stays in pretty super low on the seat tube. So you got mm-hmm. a little bit of movement designed into the carbon fiber. Now we're not, we are talking about a little bit. What might you guess? Like five millimeters? I think it's more than that. So okay. In the case of that design, I'd have to look it up. Anecdotally, I have actually been to the factory where that is is designed, where that is manufactured in southern China. So I've seen how it's built. And they're just using an elastomer in the upper part of the uh, seat stays and then the inherent flex in the carbon chain stays in order to achieve, if I had to guess, it's probably on the order of 20 millimeters or so. Okay. So it's not nothing. Yeah. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things, as we're adding things up. As, yeah. to, as to what's your maximal amount of suspension that you could build into a bike. That's not insignificant. But I'm guessing they're adding a solid 200 grams or so to the frame to achieve that. 
Yeah. And so you have the additional the addition of the weight plus again as a road bike you get out of the pedals you want that that responsiveness and this is something that's you know inevitably sapping some energy so there's always some trade off. Uh, that bike of course is very much optimized for the off-road all day in the saddle hammering sort of scenario. Uh, you can see it reflected in the Geo as a pretty long wheelbase, a shorter stem, pretty slacked out front end. I think it's on the order of 79 uh, or less than, sorry, 69 degrees, 69 and a half degrees. That's pretty, pretty slacked. So you wouldn't really want to use that as a road bike anyways. It would feel somewhat piggish on the road. It's probably a good compromise for that specific application that bike is designed for. So then the question is, do you want a bike that is really targeted or do you want a bike that is very much general purpose and versatile? Yeah. I think this is really interesting to me because it reminds me of the journey that mountain bikes have gone on over the mm -hmm. decades and how you really started to see the emergence of these cross-country specific bikes that had these specific attributes and specific handling characteristics. And mm -hmm. you had on the other end of the extreme, downhill and enduro bikes that are completely different beasts at this point. Yeah. And similarly, in the gravel market, I feel like there's maybe a little bit of tension around the existence of all these bikes, whereas you don't see that on the mountain bike side. When I see someone with a, a DH bike, I just assume they like to go downhill and they don't like to go uphill. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just your choice. That's where you're looking to optimize and we're starting to see that around gravel bikes that you're, you, as we've always said, gravel bikes, it's going to be so dependent on where you are and what you want to ride, how you're going to set these things up. So when you see a friend from out of town come with a radically different setup, don't start hucking them crap about their setup, start to embrace and understand they're going to kill it in one section of their ride where you've elected to compromise the other direction on your bike potentially. Yes, though I I still I have a pretty strong point of view on this, which which I'll I'm not a not shy to share. I've shared it before, which is start with a bike that is as versatile as possible. So this is where I really like we mentioned the Aspero it has like more of an endurance road geometry and that and then make accommodations to that bike such that it allows it to go as much into kind of off-road borderline cross-country as possible without co compromising that on-road feel. And you can do that in a way that actually you get the best of both worlds. And the trick to it is a dropper post. Because with a dropper post, if you think about one way you can do it is with geometry to make it more competent off-road. So you longer wheelbase, shorter stem, slacker head angle, more trail and everything. That will make the bike want to travel in a straight line, give it stability and make you feel more confident. But with the dropper post, you can have the snappier front end geo shift your center of mass down and back over the rear wheel. Now your front wheel is nice and, and light and can roll and sail over terrain. Uh, you don't have a bunch of, of mass distributed over that front axle in that situation. Those road surface, uh, the, the trail surface is not causing you know significant torques, torques to be applied at the handlebars. You can control that and um, using your rear wheel for speed control. And so you can have a bike that has a snappier on-road geometry, but then when you go into downhill mode, you can get your weight so far back that you still have immense competency. We ride a bike that has the same front end geo as this Sparrow with the Thesis, and with the dropper, you can ride it down some pretty gnarly stuff. You're really limited by tires rather than geometry. Yeah, I don't think we specified that the sort of the greatest travel in suspension between the bike and body is the body. If you allow the bike the room to to you to really use your legs and arms and knees and elbows to absorb 
shocks, that's where the big suspension is happening. And allowing the, by having your upper body nice and loose and the front end nice and light, the, not only can you be using your arms as some suspension, but the bicycle can rock underneath you and dance underneath you as your, your legs and, and your arms are taking that up. And once you learn that technique, it is a you know, night and day difference in terms of one's ability to ride even pretty rough stuff quite hard on these bikes. Yeah, that's uh, true. The final category we didn't actually discuss yet is the emergence of gravel-specific suspension forks. Yeah. Which would probably be, from an equipment perspective, the uh, place where you could gain the most travel in a single location. I'm still very much in the dropper post camp in that regard, given the amounts of travel with these forks. But what's your take on, have you ridden one yet? I haven't. I should say I've ridden the Fox AX a little bit, but never on Mm -hmm. my home terrain. And similarly, I've demoed a Lefty Oliver, but never really in a place where I could compare it specifically to mm-hmm. what, I've, what I'm used to. I will say when you make comments about your setup versus mine, I increasingly feel inclined to have more suspension. And I mm. think about it in the context of my rides versus yours, even if we're doing the same loop because you're riding over to meet me from the city, my ride may have 90% dirt and 10% pavement. And Mm -hmm. the mileage you ride from the city may put you at 25% pavement, just throwing something out there. And do you have a dedicated road bike still? I don't. And it's a great point, Randall. I've all but given up on road riding. And I may Mm -hmm. on occasion, I've mentioned this before, like a friend may come into town that just rides on the road and I'm, I'm happily, I'll happily join them for the company versus my desire to ride on the road. So more and more, I find myself willing to relinquish the road part of the performance of the bike mm. and trade it off for off-road performance. And that totally makes sense. And that's where I think starting to look at one of these more focused machines may make sense for some riders. I still am of the mind, though, that you can, like, so there's an evolution of what we have now where you run a bigger tire up front. So imagine a, a 225 up front and a 2.0 in the rear. And imagine there's some magic through which the geometry could be changed slightly so that the front end comes up a little bit, the, that bigger front tire is, is further out, so the geometry slows a little bit. So now you have the, the suspension of that extra volume, plus shifting your weight back and increasing the stability. But then when you throw your road wheels on, you can change the geometry and, and still maintain that snappy, that snappy handling. This is possible, and I look forward to talking about that in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think that's super cool. And Totally hear you on the tire size, because if we go back to our kind of armchair calculation about getting 30 millimeters of travel out of a 47, maybe when I'm going up to a 225, I'm actually taking that up to 45 millimeters of travel in the tire. Yeah, it's a 57 millimeter tire at 2.25. So yeah, you could use a, a significant chunk of that and have that tire running at lower pressure. So it's going to be even more sensitive uh, for, to the initial hit as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Again, I, I hearken back to just the world of mountain bikes and how everybody sets it up based on you know how they want to enjoy their personal rigs. Mm-hmm. And I, for one, am radically open to radical diversity in gravel bike setups and design. 
I think I really like these new, even more aggressive gravel bikes that we're seeing that are designed for like more aggressive single track and so on with a flat handlebar and dual suspension and a bigger fork. I think they're called down country. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that's absolutely where you lose me on the flat bar gravel bikes. I wouldn't have it. I, yeah. It's a bridge too far and too close, potentially to mountain bikes. Cause you know, for many of the listeners, they may not own a mountain bike. I know a lot of gravel yeah. athletes come to the sport from, from road cycling. And I will say, I'm still a big fan of mountain bikes. They're just, they're fun in a different way. And I continue to ride them to this day for sure. And I'm still like minimal number of bikes for the maximum amount of experiences is what I'm all about. So I'll be continuing to bang that drum for a while. (laughs) Right on. The conversation was a lot of fun. I hope the listener got something out of it. Again, there's a lot of products coming to market, lots of different ways to personalize your ride experience based on where you are. And if you're interested in commenting, we're always here in the ridership forum for you to meet us and talk to other members of the community. Yeah, we'd love to meet you there. There's a lot of, let's take a moment to talk about the ridership real quick, because we're starting to see some interesting dynamics there in terms of now that people are getting vaccinated, starting to coordinate rides, reaching out, being like, hey, I'm in this particular region, anyone nearby, and we're seeing people chime in and be like, yeah, let's get a ride going next weekend. This is exactly the mission of this, is to facilitate those offline connections. The more people that we have participating, the more those connect- more of those connections there are to be made. So we'd love to have you join us for that, as well as all the um, component nerdery and route sharing and all that good stuff. Yeah, totally. It's a blast seeing that community take off in different ways that we aren't guiding. It's just happening naturally as these things do, as when you're a member of the community, you contribute and you navigate and you create, you know, if you have questions, you get out there and just get in the mix. It's been a lot of fun to see. Yeah. And a reminder, everyone, we did buy a group Ride with GPS account that is offered to members free of charge. And if you'd like to sign up, just go to theridership.com and you can get into the Slack and start getting some of these benefits. Right on. Perfect, Randall. I will talk to you soon, my friend. Yeah, looking forward to it. Right again soon. All right. Take care. Bye. So that's it for this week's edition of In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride podcast. Thank you for spending part of your week with us this week. We'll be back next week with a long-form interview on the Gravel Ride. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, please visit www.buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride. And if you're interested in joining The Ridership, a global cycling community, simply visit www.theridership.com. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. <laughs>